Good evening. Thank you all for coming tonight. I'm Barry Sarchet of the Colorado College English Department, and it is a privilege and pleasure to introduce one of the world's great writers, citizens, teachers, and adventurers, Peter Matheson. Um, I'll try to be brief. Peter just told me to lay it on in my introduction. I'll try to lay it on, too. Um, Um, Summarizing such a prodigious and varied body of work is a daunting task. Peter Matheson is, is in fact, one of our few genuine men of letters. An editor, novelist, short story writer, travel writer, naturalist, activist, social historian, and more. I'm sure most of you here are familiar with some of Peter's work and have been dipping in and out of it for many, many years. Some of you may be like me who read At Play in the Fields of the Lord when I was in college and I knew Peter's reputation as a countercultural hero, a novelist and writer of Wildlife of America. We can now see with hindsight that Peter Matheson was far ahead of his time. Here were the beginnings of contemporary environmentalism and echo writers, paving the way for Barry Lopez, Terry Tempest Williams, and many more, as well as travel writers such as Paul Thoreau. How can one summarize the trajectory of a monumental career that begins in the late 40s and the founding of the amazing Paris Review in 1953 with Harold Humes and Peter's boyhood friend, George Plimpton? then traverses several critically acclaimed books and many, many essays in such important venues as The New Yorker, The Nation, New York Times Magazine, Outside Magazine, I don't think he's hit Oprah yet, and many others. I could also mention his many awards. For example, he is one of a handful of writers to be nominated for the National Book Award in both fiction and nonfiction. In the latter category, Peter won the award in 1978 for The Snow Leopard. Instead, summarizing, though, I think I'll just ask what sounds like a bad joke. What if we could cross Joseph Conrad and Henry David Thoreau? We'd end up with Peter Matheson. Um, We'd get dense, expressionistic prose that demands our careful attention, modernist experiments with narrative structure and subjectivity, as well as a lovingly detailed sense of our natural world and that world's ability both to tease us out of ourselves and to enable a confrontation with our innermost desires and demons. Matheson's work can also be understood as a sustained elegy, and in this sense it is unrelentingly poignant and even sad. The fates of birds, big cats, rivers, and lakes are cast in with the fates of indigenous peoples the world over. He is always seeking out sightings of those things to which we are saying goodbye and which exist on the edges of our urban modern awareness. But I want to emphasize another way to understand this sustained body of influential and magnificent work. Peter Matheson writes outdoor adventure stories, both about his own adventures and those of his fictional heroes. Adventure has now been disparaged for a while now as a suitable matter for serious reading, but that is a very recent development. The ancient Greeks would not get that. Adventure heroes from Odysseus to Lord Jim to Lewis Moon in At the Play in the Fields of the Lord, to Edgar Watson in Killing Mr. Watson, and even to the actual Leonard Peltier in In the Spirit of Crazy Horse, or the ordinary Long Island, Long Island fishermen of men's lives, are not particularly nice people. They are troublemakers, rascals, and even killers. And they are never easily contained by conventions and norms but they risk everything, and they must face the most basic facts about their worlds and themselves. What adventure heroes offer us is essential, and in this way, Peter may have created his own best adventure hero in himself. His body of work, whether fictional or not, has taken him to icy Himalayan peaks, Siberian lakes, the great American Southwest, the rainforests of the Amazon, the plains of Africa, and I could go on and on. 
There he takes his famously meticulous notes and has his equally meticulous research and comes back to us with the most precious thing of all, stories, elegant stories, stories about the unknown and the unseen phenomena of our inner and outer worlds. That's what adventurers have been doing since Odysseus, bringing back stories to us. In many of these stories, we even meet Peter Matheson himself, a man with the soul of a poet, a priest, and not a little portion of the pirate. Ladies and gentlemen, an American legend, Peter Matheson. Thank you, Barry, for he did lay it on, just as <laughs> The reason I <clears throat> asked him to lay it on was because uh, I was telling a creative writing David Durham's group this afternoon. Occasionally you're invited to speak by a fan in the English department somewhere, you know, <clears throat> and he's read something or she's read something or whatever. And uh, you come and actually nobody's ever heard of you, let alone read you, you know. <laughs> And then this fan, in his good-hearted meaning the best, he says, he steps up and he says, Peter Matheson needs no introduction. <laughs> and you just say, oh, oh, and you know you're in very serious trouble. So I teasingly, <laughs> but I meant it, I said, tell Barry to lay it on. Um, as Barry mentioned in that very generous and kind eulogy, laying it on, he, <laughs> um, I do do both fiction and nonfiction, and I should announce right away that I see myself as a fiction writer. And I, this is not unanimous. There are many people who think that I'm really a, should stay away from the novel and just write about nature. <clears throat> I don't see it quite that way. I wrote nothing but fiction for about eight or ten years, and that's how I began. And um, But I married and had kids, and the fiction was being well-received critically, but there was no income to speak of. So I wrote nonfiction to make up the gap, you know, and I became a commercial fisherman, and I ran a deep-sea fishing boat for a while, and uh, I did the various things that writers have to do to, to eke out. And, uh, but then I, then I got interested in wild areas that weren't, that were still there. And so I, tra I traveled a lot because I had a great deal with a New Yorker magazine. Mr. Sean, William Sean had come in recently as the new editor and we hit it off. And he more or less paid my way for 20 years. I mean, he would just buy my books and then he would take out what he wanted. And that was a terrific deal for me. And, you know, it came out fine. But nonetheless, my heart was, I was always trying to get back to a novel. And I wrote these few novels all along the way. And, and novels for me take a, a lot longer. This one I'm going to read a little bit from tonight. Um, this whole, it was a trilogy, but I'm putting it back into one book. Um, has been a project of over 30 years. Now, old as I am, that's a very big percentage of my writing life. And this may be, um, Barry's talking about adventure and risk, but this may be the biggest risk I've ever taken. This could be the biggest turkey that ever came down. <laughs> I think that I really, I'm sorry, it's awful for me to say a thing like that, but I think this book is the best I can do. I think it's very good. And I think that, um, but I think it really is going to have a very tough time. First of all, those critics hate really long books. They've got to review a certain number of books a week. What are they going to do with this great thing that comes in, you know? Oh, my God. No, and if they do review it, they may give you a hard time because of it, you know. 
Or they're going to think they read it because of the three books I've put back together, all came out in the 90s, and they're going to think they read the thing that I started with. So I anticipate a very bleak future for modern library and the, and the Bertelsmann Company, which owns it from Germany. I'm going to start, though, about not, with a little nonfiction. And um, I've been working in the last few years up in the Arctic, and I have been up there quite a lot before. I like Alaska. I like that coast up there a lot. Uh, and I particularly like the native peoples up there, the Guichin. Uh, they're Athabascan people. They're one of the most intact American Indian groups in North America. And they're very proud of their culture. And they're trying to perpetuate it. And they're doing everything. And they're doing it in the right way. And they're trying to bring in solar heating. But, of course, their great spiritual center is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Now, I'm sure a lot of you know about this fight. It's been going on peripherally for almost a half century. But it's been going on hard ever since 1980 because when it was created officially what was left behind was a thing called the 1002 one area of it down on the Arctic coast they set that aside for possible oil development and the oil companies led by the villainous ExxonMobil have been after it really ever since and I just want to try and persuade everybody here. At the moment, because of the last elections, the pressure is off the Arctic Refuge. A year ago, March, I mean, in other words, 13 months ago, the House and the Senate voted to drill. They had to get together on their bill, and that hadn't quite happened. But they were voting to drill in the Arctic Refuge. The Arctic Refuge is the last and the only refuge of great ice age mammal fauna. It has birds coming there to nest from every continent in the world. <laughs> There's no place like it. In Greenland, in Canada, in Siberia, there is no place like this. And on top of all of that, it's very, very beautiful. There's not very much oil there. You can't drill for oil very long or very far without wrecking that landscape uh, for good. Um, it simply is not, <coughs> it's not worth it. And every poll, which is interesting, every poll taken among the American people, um, even though they will never get there, the, the Arctic Refuge is very, very difficult to get to. And we, even if you can do it, it's very expensive to get to. There are no facilities, there's no hotels, no roads, no nothing. Um, you have to either hike in, which is about 10 days, and a very, very tough 10 days over the Brooks Range. You should see those mountains. They're very, very rough mountains. And Or you fly in with a charter plane, and there's no airstrips, but they'll land on river bars and stuff and come back, and you hope they'll come back when they're supposed to a week later, um, and, and pick you up, and then you can drift those rivers, and you'll see lots of grizzlies, and you'll see muskox and... Uh, you know, everything. It's a, it's a thrilling thing. And if you're interested in birds, as I am, it's one of the best places to go. Uh, last year, uh, I went again and, um, to uh, up to that region. There's a place called the National Petroleum Reserve. That's been a petroleum reserve for our nation since the 1920s. There are 23 and a half million acres. The refuge only has a million and a half. Right to the west of it, is this enormous area, which is also very, very interesting from a wildlife point of view, which hasn't been tapped yet. So what is the reason, what is the obsession with going into that refuge and trashing it? But I assure you, if, the, if they get any kind of leverage, the oil companies are going to be after it again. And in this case, they have a spokesman, uh, really a, an errand boy in the White House. So... Um, we have, to, we have to watch it. They're two more dangerous years. Um, anyhow, I, this, let me give you a brief impression of it. Um, wild northern Alaska is one of the last places on Earth. Can, I, can you hear me in the back row? <laughs> Good. <clears throat> wild northern Alaska is one of the last places on Earth where a human being can kneel down and drink from a wild stream without being measurably more poisoned or polluted than before. 
Its heart and essence is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in the remote northeast corner of the state, the Earth's last sanctuary of the Great Ice Age fauna that includes all three North American bears, gray wolves, wolverines, muskox, moose, and in the summer, the porcupine herd of caribou, 120,000 strong. Everywhere fly sandhill cranes and seabirds, myriad waterfowl and shorebirds, eagles, hawks, owls, shrikes, larks, and longspurs, as well as a sprinkling of far-flung birds that migrate to the Arctic slope to breed and nest from every continent on Earth. My memory is slipping. I wouldn't have told you that already if I knew it was here. Um, Yet we Americans, its caretakers, are still debating whether or not to destroy this precious place by turning it over to the oil industry for development. Tragically for the native tribes, the 1002 area of the refuge is also, the 1002 is the disputed area where the drilling will be done if it's done. Um, the 1002 area of the refuge, 1002, what a name. That's, that's for the clause in the original, whatever. Um, but compare the 1002 to some of the Indian names that are coming up here in a minute. <clears throat> the 1002 area of the refuge is also the ancient calving grounds of the Porcupine River caribou, whose astonishing, meandering annual migration of 2,500 to 3,000 miles is the longest of any terrestrial mammal on the planet. Attended by furred predators, these big racked deer from the boreal forests of eastern Alaska and northwest Canada traverse steep mountains and ford icy torrents to reach the disputed coastal plain, which in the summer is white-specked with rich cotton grass that invigorates the milk of the spent cows and the blood of the new calves. Few wolves and grizzlies trail the herds as far north as the coast, where biting insects are discouraged by the cold winds off the ice. To the Gwich'in Indians south of the mountains, this calving ground is known as Ishikwatshin Kwandai Gudlit, roughly the sacred place where life begins. So you have 1002, or you have... <laughs> <coughs> the life that is... Life, the sacred place where life begins. The life that is of caribou, which is not understood as something apart from the life of Gwich'in, the people. According to their own traditions, these indigenous Athabascan Indians have hunted caribou in the northern forests for perhaps 10,000 years. The myth, culture, economy, and future of the 15 Gwich'in villages depend on this big deer as the plain tribes once depended on the bison. In their creation story, told to me by Elder Trimble Gilbert when we met in his village on the reservation in 2002, caribou holds a piece of man's heart in its heart, <clears throat> and man a piece of caribou, so that each will know what the other one is up to. Uh, I was taken by a, 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 a Seattle businessman, actually named Tom Campion, very, who's a very he, he makes he makes boards, surfboards, all kinds of ski boards, all kinds of things, and it was a company called Zoomies, Zoomies, and the Zoomies boards were spreading across the country, and luckily Tom has made some money, and for whatever reason he is obsessed with the Arctic and saving the Arctic. And he takes people there, politicians, writers, such as, that's how I got to go there. I've been trying to get to this place for 50 years. You know, I saw, I saw the, the, the petroleum reserve flying over to Point Barrow way back in 1956, 55, 56, somewhere in there. And, uh, but I never got to the refuge because, you know, I didn't have my plane, <laughs> my Learjet. Um, but he, but he, anyway, he's the guy who took me there. Um, I, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to read you this whole article, so I'm just trying to follow my own tracks here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That year, that was 2002, <clears throat> I accompanied a river expedition through the refuge from the Brooks Range northward to the Beaufort Sea. 
dropped off by bush plane at Caribou Pass, where the Congacut River rushes forth from dark portals of the mountains, we made our first camp at the river's edge. Ah, I forgot my glasses. <laughs> Under grassy slopes, still bearing signs of the passage of the herd that had forded the river a few weeks before in early June. We caught big silver arctic char for our broiled supper and watched a cream-colored grizzly descend the grassy slope behind the camp, drawn by the smell. The first of five grizzlies observed in endless days of midnight sun as we drifted downriver among the hills and out across the plain, slipping through rapids and along white cliffs, rounding broad silver gravel bars and hoary banks of the melting permafrost that lies just beneath the meadows of the tundra. Seen across the long coastal lagoons from our final camp on icy reef, where small icebergs nudged the outer beach. The Brooks Range ramparts rose to snow peaks at 9,000 feet, walling away the din of the world's progress. This southward prospect was more magnificent than any Alaskan landscape I had ever seen. The mysterious dark mountains, the sun-filled flowered plain where ancient beasts drifted through strange golden mists, the sprinkle of bird voices in the silent distance. In the variety and abundance of its creatures, no comparable Arctic wilderness is left. This, this past year, last year, uh, I went to the Petroleum Reserve, which I'd seen flying over when I saw how vast it was, but I'd never been on the ground there. And Tom Campion, again, financed a trip and we flew up from Coldfoot, which is uh, on, the go on, the on the oil road there, and we flew west and then over the Brooks Range. And all the way we were seeing caribou making their way north to cross the mountains. And they're on their way to, and we were on our way to a place called the Congacut uplands of uh, uh, western Alaska, quite a long way from the refuge, but still very rich in, uh, in wildlife, very rich. As I just, I have to repeat that too. Occupying most of the North Slope west of the wildlife refuge, the Petroleum Reserve too is unspoiled wildlife habitat and arguably as biologically significant. So it is sad that as a practical matter it cannot be saved. The federal government has already sold leases there and important deposits of oil, gas, coal and other minerals have been found. We, we have to accept that. We need these fuels for energy. We hope that they're Alternative fuels will come along quickly, but for the moment, we are dependent on the fossil fuels. This should not mean that public opinion can't still have an effect in ensuring that it is developed with discrimination. Our idea on June, in June 2006 was to look at wild regions in the petroleum reserve that should be spared during its imminent transformation from our nation's greatest roadless wilderness to a road-scarred, marred, gouged, and contaminated wasteland stained by leaks and spills of petroleum and toxic drilling fluids and littered with rusted drums and pipes and gear. <clears throat> Farther west, crossing the mountains, we came across bands of northbound caribou scattered along the gravel banks of one of the many torrents that would impede but never halt their migration. Down a mountainside swung a dark sow grizzly with sandy cub. White dal sheep stood white and still on a ridge overlooking a headwaters creek in the north slope drainage of the great Colville River, which flows east through the petroleum reserve before turning north toward the Beaufort Sea. In this remote region of the reserve, almighty in its emptiness, the mountains are small and the barren ground is endless, descending northward some 200 miles toward Point Barrow and the Arctic Ocean. That the petroleum reserve seems less dramatic and less beautiful than the wildlife refuge, where the mountains rise 2,000 feet higher and are scarcely 20 miles inland, comes as a mild relief, since we know that alternative energy is tragically delayed by the stunted ambitions of industry and government will never become competitive in time 
to save the greater part of it being despoiled. I should, I should read this more often so I spare you the repetition of the same facts over and over again. Very tiresome. It may be a thing of age. Who knows? But um, Then, I want you to listen carefully to this, this experience. We made camp in, on the Uttarkot and the plane took off and we made our camp there in a beautiful area and we'd seen thousands of caribou as we passed over and they were all heading for where we were and we wanted to see them come in over the hills to this river basin, you know, and, uh, and we had a beautiful camp and the very first while, this was in June, there's still quite a lot of snow and ice around, but the first wildflowers were already coming up and uh, it was a lovely place. And we had a, we had a, um, what would I call it? It was like a, well, a snowbank, a, a big snowbank with a kind of an ice glaze on it was right, right near our tent, you know, right there. And, uh, and there was these jagers, these hunting, these predatory seabirds that hunt, that are a hawk-like, but not a hawk. They're actually related to the gulls, but they're very beautiful birds, very sharp, winged and sharp-tailed and very fast and very, um, savage. I got bonked by one in the head in Antarctica one time. I can tell you they pack a wallop, these guys. <laughs> And, and there's a funny scene where one of them, where a big old lemming, big fat lemming, he tried to cross over this snowbank, you know, and he got about halfway across, and a predator and a, a, a jager came along and hit him so hard, he rolled him like a snowball all the way across. And then he uh, alighted next to him and sort of pecked at him, but wasn't very efficient, and then said, out of hell with us, and, and he took off. <laughs> and the lemming said, I'm not going over the cliff today, and he went... <laughs> He, t he did a U-turn and went right back to the very spot he left. But shortly after observing this wonderful site, uh, and we had all three species of Jager there, three of them uh, nesting within high side of our camp, um, we did a hike up the river just to see what we would see. And we were, we'd hardly gone a half mile when Tom Campion, who had a spotting scope, said, I've got a wolf. In his spotting scope on a, on a, on a bed of deaded, <laughs> in his spotting scope on a bed of dead matted vegetation on the river edge lies the first white wolf I, I have ever seen. Ears up, forepaws still neatly crossed, still neatly crossed, alert but unalarmed, its gaze is fixed on the point where we crouch half seen among scrub willow stalks. The white wolf is, by the way, that posture, if you just check out your own dog at home, you will know that the dog lying like that is completely unthreatened and at ease. And it makes very good sense. Why would a wild animal tangle up its limbs if it had to make a speedy getaway? You can see quite a, you know. So when you see that in a wild dog or a, tame, a domestic one, that's a good sign of serene calm. Um, the white wolf is about to slip away, but to our astonishment, she lingers a few moments before turning without haste into the willows. It, for some reason, there was something about this creature. You, you knew at once it was a female. And there's nothing really in the composition of the head or the face. It may be slightly more delicate, but really only more delicate when you compare it to a male. Uh, there was really no sign. She was just there, but we all, I, you know, I checked with the others later, and they all said, we know, we agree. It was, we knew from the beginning. <clears throat> but to our, <clears throat> to our astonishment, she lingers a few moments before turning without haste into the willows. A second wolf, a big gray one, rises from camouflage at the willow edge and stares our way. We think this is the male. Slowly he moves toward the place where the other wolf had vanished, at which point, miraculously, she reappears. Ears forward, the two stare not at us, but at something in the hills across the water. They are perhaps a hundred yards away. The white wolf crosses the willows and springs up onto the grassy bank, then comes downriver to a point just opposite, where we still crouch in disbelief. By now, she must surely have our scent, but she only observes us, still unalarmed, as if having no experience of such a smell, she has no reason to fear it. Meanwhile, the gray one, 
slipping through the willows, comes right toward us. It is not a case of lupus stalking homo, for he makes no real effort at concealment. He is no more than 40 feet away when the bare red willow stalks thin out, leaving him half exposed. He then, he stops then and fixes us with gold-flecked wolf eyes, which are fantastic eyes. And Barry was just describing some he'd seen today. Um, gold-flecked wolf eyes as if to divine what these peculiar brutes are doing in wolf country. And he turns and cuts across and rejoins the white wolf on the bank. Without greeting her, he raises his muzzle high, black nostrils flared into the wind, turning his head in a minute arc, sifting our scents. Finally, trailed by his she-wolf, he trots uphill a little way, in no great hurry, and lies down in the grass. In remote mountains a hundred miles from the nearest indigenous hunters on the coast, it seemed more likely than not that these fearless animals had never beheld a man before in all their lives. Uh, that's the sense you, you got from the wild animals up there. They were just tame. They were in that state. Imagine that such a place could still exist on Earth, and not for long. <laughs> Alas, you know, it's, it's a pity. I'd never seen wolves behave. Every wolf I've ever seen until then had, was on its way out. <laughs> They usually check out pretty fast at the very first. We know in Nepal, one time up in the Himalayas, I was with this um, biologist, George Schaller, and we watched wolves chase these mountain baral sheep down across a cliff face. It was the most exciting thing I think I've ever seen. But it was no more exciting than that she-wolf laying there watching us from really about as far away as the back row here. And the, and the male came in to maybe six rows back. He really wanted to see what we were like. <laughs> so that, that is that for that. This, this, this winter, I mean this summer, I'm going back. Um, uh, I want to work a little bit with the Inupiat people on the coast because, as you know, they are the most threatened people anywhere, I think. In my view, they're being poisoned, severely poisoned um, by fallout, really, of uh, industrial chemicals, the things that Rachel Carson was writing about. But by a terrible irony, at one point, they did some tests to see which peoples were being most impacted, to use that dreadful word, impacted by pollution, contamination, and so forth. And they wanted a, you know, they wanted a, a what do you call it, a, a, a people like the people they give placebos to. You know, they wanted a, a one group that was not contaminated to serve as a control for the others. Um, and they chose very logically, the Inupiat, because they're, you know, thousands of miles from industry and way up there in the Arctic ice and cold and clean and you can drink the water. Well, you could then. And this was the idea. And they discovered that these people were among the most contaminated by chemicals of any people on Earth. I thought, how did that happen? How does it happen? The rivers were clean, everything. And how it happened was that due to various climatic things and winds and so forth, that in the wintertime, a lot of these current air currents and stuff move northward. And there's kind of an inversion. And a lot of these chemicals come down. And these lichens, these, you know, fungal, algaic plants, uh, synthesize these chemicals, absorb them. And the caribou's main diet are the lichens. And the people's main diet is the caribou. So they were getting a wallop of contamination all, you know, most of the year. Now they have also all the mining, the drilling, and all the fumes that come from that because all that's going on right around them, you know. And then on top of that, as we've read a lot recently, the ice is withdrawing. And with the ice goes the polar bear, the seals, the walrus, <clears throat> all of those creatures. They are being stripped of their livelihood. They don't quite know it yet. There is some noise now. They're starting to talk about it. But I think it was so slow. And then suddenly it wasn't slow anymore. It's like global warming. We talked about global warming for years and years and years. And then suddenly now we have droughts, fires, incredible glaciers disappearing. 
it's all happening at once because of a very small shift in the environment um, can be very, very, very damaging indeed. So I'm going up there. To, we're going to sort of talk to them and see and just see how they are. I just want to see and, and try and help draw attention to their um, situation. Now, over to fiction. Um, my, this, what I'm reading and what I'm working on is a, I brought three novels out in, in, the, in the 90s. The first one was called Killing Mr. Watson. The second one was called Lost Man's River. The third was called Bone by Bone. Uh, they all came out. They were, they were pretty well received. The sales weren't very good, but my sales are never very good. Um, so, um, <clears throat> but they had originally been one book, and I took it into the publishers, and it stood about as high as this podium <clears throat> off the floor, you know. And my editor just paled. He said, you expect us to publish that, you know, kind of thing. Anyway, we, we made a compromise, and we split it up into three books. I was always a little bit unhappy about it. The middle book always served as a kind of a prop between the end two books, which are much stronger. And I always, my metaphor for the whole thing was a dachshund. If you, if you can, <laughs> if you imagine a dachshund, it's pretty solid at the ends, but it's got this big slope in the middle. You know? <laughs> and, and although the best material actually in the whole trilogy is in the middle book, the book itself was, structurally wrong. It just really was wrong. And I wanted to cut it drastically, and I wanted to align it and bring it back together. And I thought I would take a year to do this, and it's been four or five years now. Um, but I am turning it in. I'm working on it, hammer and tong. I'm dealing with last little quibbles. I had this in the airplane coming out yesterday. Um, Mr. Watson is, was a real man. He's a legend in Florida. He is alleged to have killed as many as 55 people. At the same time, he was a man who's considered by everybody a near genius as a farmer, an extraordinary entrepreneur, very good with crops and animals. He wasn't some, you know, serial killer. He was a man with a bad drinking habit and a very bad temper, a really a terrible temper. He was also a man uh, beaten, we think, beaten savagely by a father as a boy, by his father. And we know a lot of people, a lot of kids like that, turn into um, dreadfully, dangerously angry people. Um, Watson doesn't interest me as a killer, uh, but he interests me for these other aspects of him. As a farmer, he learned very quickly to learn how to sail his own schooner. He was running his own schooner single-handedly up and down the coast, as all those people did. Amazing. He had great ideas for development, for drainage, for uh, the Everglades, all these things. He was married three times. He didn't kill any of the wives. They, they, they died off one way or the other. Um, he had seven kids uh, by these three ladies. He had two at least other children by other ladies who also thought he was very charming. He was considered to be a, a great storyteller. For my purposes, I make him a good storyteller. I also, because it makes it so much easier to write about somebody who amuses you, <laughs> I think I've given him a pretty good sense of humor. At least it, it fits my own dark, laconic uh, view. And um, so, I, so he's fun to write about, um, you know, and I make him that. But he's also very scary. He's very, very scary. And eventually, in 1910, on October 24th, his neighbors killed him, and they didn't fool around. There were 33 bullets taken out of him by the time they said, oh, well, <laughs> primary cause of death is probably lead, you know. <laughs> 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 um, uh, that event is still being disputed in southwest Florida. Some people say they ambushed him, they bushwhacked him. Uh, he came in in his boat to this little, little village called Chukaluski in the south, in, on the edge of the Everglade uh, National Park now. And uh, others said no, that he challenged them and raised his, he had a double-barrel shotgun, he raised it up, and if they hadn't shot him to pieces. The most amazing thing to me, it's, it's a legend and that you cannot find it, and almost everything written about it is false. Even, um, what's her name? Marjorie Douglas, 
she wrote a great book about the Everglades called The River of Grass, a truly great book. And she had three pages in there about Mr. Watson, and every single fact was wrong. People didn't, you know, writers are a lazy bunch anyway. They don't bother to do their own research. They just put down what the last guy got, you know, this is, this is, this is not good reporting. And, the, and also the people over there, they tell her what she, they thought she wanted to hear, which is the most lurid possibly thing, thing. And they all, and you hear the same expressions over and over again. He, he'd give you the shirt off his back with one hand and put a knife in your back with the other, you know. You get a lot of that. That's all you know. And uh, so nobody really knew. Nobody knew a thing about the three wives. He, the three wives were all came from Columbia County in North Florida, which he lived where he lived. He had another farm up there. He, he would work both places because usually he was in trouble in one place or the other. So he kept going back and forth. He was tried. He's the only guy ever taken to court for the killing of Belle Starr, the outlaw lady in Oklahoma. Mr. Watson was very much, he, her husband said he's the guy that, that killed her. And he was taken to court in, in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And um, they threw out the there wasn't enough evidence to hold him. And nobody really knows. Bell Starr was such a dreadful woman that, um, you know, that a lot of people wanted to kill her. You know, a great many. They were lined up. So all the biographies have a hell of a time sorting this out. But the main biography is called Hell on the Border. I wish I'd thought up that title. That's a great title. Hell on the Border. And in Hell on the Border, it says that she was killed by a man named Watson, who then went to the Arkansas Penitentiary for horse theft and was killed in an attempt to escape. Well, he did go to the Arkansas Penitentiary for horse theft. That is true. And I guess he did escape. And he certainly wasn't killed because he showed up in Florida again about 1893, got in another shooting in Arcadia, Florida, and then moved south to the islands. And it stopped off in northern Florida to get married again and uh, kept going. Um, very Anyway, I'm not going to bore you with all that. Uh, he, he, to, to, I, I, two things I should mention. One is that for my pur purposes as a writer, what I wanted to do was to write about a man who is no, unquestionably a killer. I can't get him off the hook on that. He did not kill 55 people or anything like it. He, it's very hard to re separate him from some responsibility, at least, in the deaths of about seven people, which isn't so much in a long lifetime. You know? <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the frontier, you know, they don't fool around. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to take a man like that, who was a bad drinker, a violent man, a, a, ruthless, a ruthless man, related to, in many ways, and I wanted to show his humanity. So I make up a childhood. There are almost no hard facts about Watson. The best facts I got were off gravestones. Because at least the gravestones were probably pretty accurate in regard to the dates of the deceased, you know, uh, so forth. And you got certain dates and certain connections, and they were very sound. Some county records helped. But almost everything published, even in the newspapers of the time, was was all wrong. It was all anyway. You know, we we don't have much respect for our media now because they made up or they went, went with a lot of uh, myth and so forth in regard to our present problems in the Middle East. But back then, they were totally irresponsible. There was no, there's no check on them at all. You could say anything in the papers. You know, so that was one thing. And the other thing was that something. And I've heard this rumor. And there's quite a lot of reason to think it's pretty well grounded. But that the first, Watson came up in his boat. They had three people that had been murdered on his plantation. He was not there. He did have a truly murderous foreman, a young guy, only about 20 or 21, a real killer. Uh, and that guy, with whatever authority, some said Watson told him to do it, he wanted to cut down his payroll or whatever. However it happened, three murders were done. The people got terrified. They were already very scared of Watson. Their nerves were shot. They'd had a terrible hurricane there just the week before. He came in on this other, he went down to deal with a killer. And he said he'd bring back the body or he'd bring back the guy's head. And he came back with neither. And they were immediately suspicious that he'd just taken this young guy and taken him over to the Key West Railroad, which was going down, already going down at that time. Um, 
they didn't know what to believe. And he came in, and there was a very disputed episode at the end of which they filled him full of lead and really did, not just a manner of speaking. <laughs> they filled him full of lead. And his wife was right there. And now, I don't, I don't know if she actually saw it, but she was in the, in the store there uh, when it happened. Um, but the rumor was, and there's some foundation, is that the first shot, the first bullet, and the only one that was needed was fired by a black man. Now, if you know your history of America, even slightly, 1910, that's Jim Crow. Those are Jim Crow years. Even carrying a gun down with that crowd, which is dealing with a white man, was a death penalty, was a death offense, or it could be if they chose to take it that way. <clears throat> a black guy would never, never, never even be there if he could help it. How did Henry get there? His name was Henry Short. He was a real man. He could only have gotten there because his, the people he lived with, the white people, told him to be there. But he was a famously good shot, as was Watson. Henry Short was the only guy they thought could outshoot Watson by local legend. I, again, I'm building this up. But for me, this is an incredible symbolic act. How did it happen? How did he get there? What gave him the courage or the craziness or whatever it was to raise the gun? Did Watson see him? All these things start happening, and the people themselves did not punish Henry. Henry had to run away. They, they, I know that he did. He fled because, but he fled because he was sure they would lynch him, you know, but not necessarily because, because they wanted him there. They all kind of admitted we wanted him there. He was the only guy that could outshoot Watson. And, uh, if so, it's a great, great American legend. It seems so to me. If, especially if you know anything about those years, you could, you could shoot a black person just about anywhere you wanted except in front of church on a Sunday on those frontiers in those days. It was really a terrible, terrible time of our history. And it's, we're not entirely over it yet. But nonetheless, it was amazing. So for him to do that at that period, anyhow, I won't go into all that. I'm going to do a brief reading because I think I'm probably, I'm going over my time, haven't I? Um, okay. <laughs> Get out your sleeping bags. No, no. Um, this, this will be brief and, and merciful. This, this is a, a description of Watson's first, when he first comes down into the Everglades regions. There were very few people living in the Everglades in those days who were not on the run somewhere else. There were even some guys who didn't, hadn't been told that the Civil War was over. <laughs> they were still out there in the swamps. Watson is a wanted man. He's escaped from Arkansas. We do know that historically. He must have escaped and, and come back. He did not want to hang around civilization. Um, he did have money, and how he got it, he, I, I can only conclude that for a while at least he was an outlaw, and there was plenty of opportunity to be an outlaw. Um, but anyway, he arrives, wants to set up and get his family down there and live a good, up, upright life. This is his voice. The first part of the book are the voices of his neighbors, the scared, timid, appraising voices of those who knew him and worked with him and so forth. Also of his children, because his children loved him. They did. They did. And these women adored him. He was very, very attractive to women, apparently. Uh, and the second part of the book is from the point of view of his son, Lucius, who was a real man. But I know nothing about Lucius, really. But, uh, but he's a, but Lucius adores his father. He cannot believe that this has happened to his father because imagine the scandal. And the, the Watsons were a very good family. His daughter was married to the president of the First National Bank in Fort Myers, the guy who brought in the railroad. They, they came from a very, very good family in South Carolina. So imagine the scandal of having dad blown away to the tune of 33 bullets. I mean, that's quite a exit, you know. And uh, people talk, you know, about things like that, you know. <laughs> and in the small provincial town, which Fort Myers was then, it must have been something for the, for the family. Um, I, I, I derailed myself, which is not, has been known to happen before. Anyway, <laughs> Watson is on his way to the Everglades for the first time. And I'm going to give it, oh, yes. That's what it was. Lucius's voice is the second book. 
uh, the third book is in Watson's voice. Right from the beginning, I take him from a little boy right up to the point where he knows he's blown it, so to speak, you know. Um, and now he's arriving in the Everglades for the first time. He's got some money in his pocket, probably not ill-gotten, but however, he's never been here before. Three miles inland from the open gulf between the islands and the mainland, Chukaluski Bay was a broad, shallow flat almost nine miles long and up to two miles wide. At low tide, it was so shallow that herons walked like Jesus on the pewter shine a half mile from shore. And all around looked like the end of nowhere. Mud banks and islets gathered into walls of dark <coughs> mangrove jungle with strange stilt roots growing in salt water and leaves which stay that leathery hard green all year around. For a man from the north, used to the hardwood seasons in their colors, this tide flooded and inhospitable tangle that never changed was going to take a lot of getting used to. In all of the 10,000 islands, Chatham Bend was the largest Indian mound after Chukaleski. Forty acres of rich black soil disappearing under jungle because the squatter on there with his wife and daughter would not farm it. They were living along on grits and mullet, selling bad moonshine to the engines. Like more than one island inhabitant, Will Raymond Esquire was a fugitive and killer, glowering from wanted posters all the way from Tampa Bay to Key West. He liked the bend because it was surrounded by a million miles of mangrove, giving the lawmen no way to come at him except off the river. In our skiff, we drifted down around the bend, keeping our distance. Uh, Watson is being guided by a young boy named Erskine Thompson, who becomes a character. There was a loose palmetto shack on there and smoke, but when I hailed, no answer came back, only the soft mullet slap and whisper of the current and a scratchy wisp of birdsong from the clearing. So the boy slid in under the bank, put me ashore. He had heard about this mangy bastard and was scared to death. I told him to row out beyond gunshot range, but to stay in plain sight as a warning to Will Raymond that there was a witness. And once the skiff was safe away, I hallooed once or twice before sticking my head over the bank to have a look. Nothing moving, nothing in sight. I rose up slow, keeping my hands well out to the sides, and nervously wasted my best smile on a raggedy young girl who retreated back inside the narrow, the, the rotted shack. All this while, Will Raymond had me covered. I could feel the iron of his weapon and his hungry muzzle, and my heart felt naked and my chest flimsy and pale beneath my shirt. But I was up there in one piece with my revolver up my sleeve, smiling hard, and looking all around to enjoy the view. Hearing a hard and sudden cough like a choked dog, I turned to confront an ugly galoot hefting a rifle who had stepped out from behind his shack. Unshaven, barefoot, in soiled rags and an old broken hat, he stunk like a dead animal on that river wind. Even after I presented my respects, his coon rifle remained trained on my stomach, his finger, his finger twitching on the trigger. I'd seen plenty of this scurvy breed in the backcountry, all the way from Oklahoma east and south. Knife-mouthed, piney woods crackers, hollow-eyed under black hats, and lean-faced females with lank hair like horses, and sour babes in, lo <coughs> in long, hard, stringy arms. Go crazy every little while, shoot some poor devil through the heart. Seems Will had done that more than once in other parts, got the bad habit of it. With his red puffy eyes like sores and purple nose, Will Raymond looked rotted out by drink, but also steady as a stump, a very unsettling combination in a dangerous man. The muzzle of a shooting iron at point-blank range looks like a black hole leading straight to hell. But I did my best to keep on smiling. Mr. Raymond said, I I'm here today with an interesting business proposition. Yes, sir, I said, you're looking at a man ready and willing to pay hard cash for the quit claim to a likely farm on the high ground. This place, for instance. 
$200, for instance. $200 is a lot of money on the frontier in Florida, 19. This would have been about 1893 or so. Will Raymond wore a wild, unlimbered look, and his manners were not good. He never so much as introduced me to his females, who kept popping their heads out of their holes like the prairie dogs back in Oklahoma. In fact, he made no response at all, except to cough and spit in my direction, whatever he dredged up from his racked lungs. However, that mention of cold cash had set him thinking because his squint narrowed, while estimating how much money might be removed from my dead body. He was considering that boy out on the river who was doing his best to hold his skiff against the current. Will Raymond had reached a place in life where he had very damn little left to lose. He coughed again that same hard bark. If you're looking for a farm at the ass end of hell, 70 mile by sea from the nearest market, and have a liking for the company of man-eating mosquitoes and non-foot rattlers and river sharks and panthers and crocodiles and every kind of creeping varmint ever thunk up by the Lord to bedevil his sinners. Well, then, this looks like your kind of place. <laughs> My kind of place, that's right, sir. I sing out cheerily. No, sir, it sure ain't, because I am on here first. And next time, sir, you go to trespassing without my say-so, sir, I will blow your head off. Any questions? Not a one, say I, <clears throat> in the same carefree tone. I signal for my boat. While waiting, I venture to look around a little more, thinking how much my Mandy, Mandy was his second wife, how much my Mandy might enjoy these two fine, big, red-blossomed poinsettias. Yes, sir, a fine day on the river. Makes a man feel good to be alive. Well, you got maybe ten more seconds to feel alive in, mister. And after that, you ain't going to feel nothing at all. <clears throat> Under my coat, the thirty-eight lay along my forearm, set to drop into my hand. To drill this polecat in his tracks would have been a mercy to everyone concerned, especially his poor drag-ass females. Instead, I climbed into the skiff, headed downriver. What I needed more than anything right now was a reputation as an upright citizen. So I put aside my motto of good riddance of bad rubbish to in favor of every dog must have its day. <laughs> this dog had had his day at Shannon Bend, and mine would come next, or my name wasn't Jack Watson, which it wasn't. Will Raymond observed our skiff until we passed behind the trees on the next bend. His figure stood there black and still as a cypress snag out in the swamp, his old Confederate long rifle on his shoulder like the scythe of death. Out on the coast again, looking back, I noted with approval that the river mouth, all broken up by mangrove clumps, would pass unseen by any vessel, even from a quarter mile offshore. So as far as Watson's concerned, he's already living there. While in Key West, I paid a call on the Monroe County Sheriff, Richard Knight, in regard to a certain notorious fugitive depicted on the wanted posters in the post office. The murderer Will Raymond, I advised him, could be found right up the coast in Chatham River. The sheriff knew this very well and was sorry to be reminded of it. <laughs> he sighed as he bit off his cigar my report would oblige him to send out a posse when, like most lawmen, enjoying the modest graft of elected office. He much preferred to defer these thorny matters. Taking the chair that the sheriff had not offered, I said, I sure hated to cause trouble for Mr. Raymond, but as a law-abiding citizen, I knew my duty. Looking up for the first time, he said, that mean you won't be needing the reward? <coughs> Sheriff Knight and I understood each other right from the first, and our understanding was this. We did not like each other. But a few days later, a sheriff's posse laid off the river mouth until three in the morning, then drifted upriver with the tide as I'd advised them, and had four men ashore before they hollered to Will Raymond to come out with his hands up. 
Will hollered back, said he'd be damned if he'd go peaceable, and he whistled a bullet past their heads to prove it. But he was peaceable as could be by the time the smoke cleared, and they flung his mangy carcass in the boat. They offered his widow their regrets, along with a kind invitation to accompany the deceased on a nice boat ride to Key West. And the widow said, well, thank you, boys. I don't mind if I do. <clears throat> on my next visit, when I went to the sheriff's office to offer my congratulations, I happened to mention <clears throat> the information which led to Will Raymond's arrest. Wincing, he slid open a drawer and forked over $250 in hard cash reward without a word. I never kept a penny of that money. I went straight over to Peg's boarding house on White Street and offered it to the widow Raymond as a consolation in her time of bereavement. By now, the widow was looking a lot better, <clears throat> or at least a good deal cleaner. <laughs> Perky, she said, Mr. Stranger, this year is my lucky day, and you sure are my savior. Bless your heart. She offered corn spirits and a simple repast and took me straight to bed out of pure gratitude and the milk of human kindness. Buttoning up, I happened to mention the late Mr. Raymond's quitclaim, and she implored me to accept it with her compliments, declaring her sincere and fervent hope that she would never set eyes or foot on that place again. Altogether, a touching story with a happy ending. I strode away to the docks with a lilting heart, confident at last that my path had made a turning in the right direction. <laughs> Thank you.